to the book of James chapter 4. My subject this morning is secrets to victorious living, although they're not really all that much of a secret. Last week I talked about unity when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I talked about Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth and the way in which he was kind of surprised and astonished at this church that he birthed. And then he had gone away and what had begun to develop. He had gotten word that there had grown factions or cliques or divisions within the church in Corinth. And I made the point that this letter in 1 Corinthians was not about the division or the factions or the issues or the problems of Corinth. They had their own issues. This, in 1 Corinthians, it was about the issues and the factions and the divisions in the Corinthian church. That was his focus. Well, James kind of picks that up. In James chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Such a cheery fellow, James is. The bottom line for a victorious life, a life that we can perceive and then present to others as victorious, is a life that submits to God. There really is no other way. There may be 10-step programs or a book, Seven Steps to This or Nine Steps to That, But if those steps don't include submitting to God, they're pointless. He begins by talking about wars and fightings from among you. Now, he says some pretty pretty hard things. He calls them murderers and people who covet. This is church. I haven't seen a news report lately where 
the people of God came together and then the police were called in for a murder investigation. So what is he speaking of? Well, if you remember from the Gospels that Jesus made it clear that where murder begins, it begins in the heart. And it begins with hate or discord or distance. So the first thing I want to present as an idea for living and walking this victorious life is when we pray, and we need to pray, pray according to God's wills. Because he says, why are there wars inside the body of Christ? Why is there fighting and strife inside the body of Christ? Why are there personal conflicts? And again, this is within the body of Christ, and the actual words they're used in the original language speak as far as wars and fightings. He's talking about military combat here. And this is within the church family. Now, there will always be differences of opinion. It's not evil to have differences. What the evil comes is in how we handle them. Because when the differences come up, and notice I said when, not if, the question is not just what the differences are, but what was the source and James says that many times the differences that arise are because of selfishness. Because after all, every morning the person that you see in the mirror, isn't that the person who knows everything about everything? The person you see in the mirror every morning just has a complete handle on every issue of life. Selfishness. And that's the nice word that we use in our language. We call it selfishness. The biblical principle of what that is is simply idolatry. People trying to decide for other people what's best. People's own desires for pleasures and our own desires for the way we want things to go wind up putting you and me at the center of the universe. Massive revelation coming. You are not the center of the universe. As amazing and awesome as you are, you are not the center of the universe. You never have been. You never will be. Life or living a self-centered life leads nowhere. It leads to destruction. And within a community, even and especially the Christian community, it leads to discord and strife. And verse 2 gets to the heart of the issue. You lust and do not have, murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You lust and don't have, kill and cannot obtain, fight and war, and it produces nothing. And we struggle in life as if everything depends upon me. Everything I have depends upon me. That's a sad life. Everything I have depends upon God. Everything I always have had depends upon God. Everything I always will have depends upon God. Everything I want for my children depends upon God. Everything I want for this church depends upon God. Everything depends upon God. The attitude, if I don't do it, it won't happen winds up putting you and me at the center of life. 
at the center of existence, at the center of a community. I just want to let you know, if your life completely depends upon you, you're in trouble. Because we need to depend upon Jesus, our source of joy. He's our source of hope. He's our source of strength. He's our source of power. He is our source of life. Then he says you don't have because you don't ask. I've still noticed that the most difficult thing for people to do sometimes is ask. Happened again. Recently, a few weeks ago, we were out to dinner with a few friends and we were celebrating a friend's birthday and having a wonderful time. There were about 10 of us there. It was awesome. All Christians, wonderful. The fellowship was sweet. The food was good. And then the husband of the wife whose birthday we were celebrating, when the check came, said, guys, this has been a blessing having you all here to celebrate my wife's birthday. I'm going to cover the check. You would have thought a disease had come into the place. No, 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 you can't do that. And people started pulling out money. Well, wait a minute. Someone just said they want to bless you. Practice something with me. It might be hard, but I think you can do it. Say it with me. Thank you. See, it, no energy in that, none at all. Thank you. You're getting better at it. You can work on it. Because for some reason, when we get in those situations, we have this idea, no, I've got to pay my own way. I've got to depend upon me. I've got to put forward things. I don't want people looking at me a certain way. Someone just said they want to bless you. And what is the answer to a blessing? You guys are getting good at this. Because life doesn't depend upon you. You and I need God. No amount of ability, no amount of life experience, no amount of skill, no amount of developed talent, no amount of any of those things is ever going to change the truth that you and I need God. We need Jesus, and part of Jesus is his body. So here you go. We need one another. It's, he says some still ask and don't have. He says because they ask with the wrong motives. Their motives are out of line with God's will. I remember it was years ago, but it was a question that just paused me. A Christian came up to me one time in church many, many years ago and said, would it be okay for me to pray that I win the lottery? And I just, my first thought was, no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> and the only response, I guess I was taken back, the only response I'd come up with is, well, if you won, what are you going to do with it? And he goes, well, I would pay off a house, buy my parents a home, buy a couple of things, take care of my kids. And then I asked him, how far down before you get to God? Be 
Because if we're going to ask for something, shouldn't we try to ask for things that are completely in line with his will? And it made it clear to me, given the list of things, and I, I kind of got the impression down before we got to God on that list, there was a Corvette or a Maserati somewhere in there. You ask because you don't ask in accordance with God's will. Would all of a sudden $10 million being dropped into my bank account be an awesome thing? I will declare to the heavens, yes, it would. But do I need that? No. I need Jesus. I need him. They were asking just to pursue their own desires, their own way of looking at life, their own way in which things should go. They would ask things just to have their own way. And then when things didn't happen, they would complain about it. Well, guess what? When you ask God for something and it's not according to his will, guess what's not going to happen? That prayer being answered in the affirmative. You don't have because you don't want to put God into the mix, he says. The heart's motive is wrong. Which means, and this is true for all of us, If we've been praying for something and it goes unanswered, we need to do two things. One is check our hearts and understand why we're praying for this. And two, if our hearts are clean before the Lord, then we need to do something that biblical characters throughout the Bible have done, and that's be patient and wait on God. Abraham was a hundred when the promise came. That's waiting. That's waiting on God. I can't wait forever. That's laughable. I don't know. Sarah laughed and gave birth to her first child at the age of 90. Ladies, think about that for a minute. You ask because you're, and don't receive because you're not in line with his will. Are you asking for a proper thing? You're asking for a godly thing. Are you asking for God's will to be done above all that you and I might want? Our prayers may not get answered because we're seeking our own will and our own will to be imposed into our own situations rather than saying, Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First John chapter 5, verse 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything, he hears us. Oh, I forgot something in that place. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Gee, why did John have to put that last part in there? God's will must always come first. He must come before the way I think things should go. He must come before the what I happen to think is best. He must come before even things that might cause me fear. I promise you, if I hear the voice of God and I discern it is genuinely the voice of God and the voice of God is telling me to get on a roller coaster, I think about it. then I'll probably get on. 
because he comes before those things that even frighten us. He comes before those situations that we're not comfortable in. He comes before those situations that stretch us and move us out of our comfort zone. He comes before our desire to change things. We've got to change things. God comes before our desire to change anything. And he comes before our desire to not change anything. Seeking our own will leads to strife. Seeking our own will leads to heartache. And as James has pointed out, seeking our own will leads to trouble. Seeking God's will leads to an abundant life. Now, others are not going to agree with you always. Others may not support you. But as we were singing this morning and as was mentioned in the exhortation, the best thing any of us can teach and encourage one another is to hear his voice. That's why we gather together in prayer. One, it's an awesome privilege to come together in the middle of the week and pray. But it's also an opportunity to continue to exercise and strengthen our ability to hear his voice. Because how many know there are a lot of voices out there? But I want to hear his voice. The best thing we can teach children is to hear his voice. The best thing we can teach our friends is to hear his voice. God will always lead me in the right direction. I need to hear his voice. We get into trouble when we try and live as if everything depends upon us. And then when we do, ask only in selfishness. So we need to pray according to his will. Secondly, we need to love God more than the world. You would think that wouldn't be a difficult thing to encourage the church. James then takes this point further about praying selfishly and makes it clear you cannot follow the world, you cannot be aligned with the world in an ideological way and be one with God. You can't live an unfaithful life, a life that's not faithful to the scriptures, and then wonder why things don't go right. You can't live a Christian life the world's way. Often amazed me when I try to explain to coworkers or friends that don't know the Lord why I do the things I do. When I used to explain to those that were my fellow sports officials, whether in football or in baseball, why I would never take a game or an assignment on a Sunday morning. And they would look at me strange and they would make comments and they would basically, as unbelievers, try and tell me how to be a Christian. It doesn't make any sense. I can't live a Christian life the world's way. They have no concept of what following Jesus is like. James makes it plain. He calls it friendship with the world. Makes you an enemy of God. We need to just realize the world and God are on opposite sides. Opposite affections, opposite desires, opposite goals. I don't enjoy life the world's way. I contend the world doesn't enjoy life the world's way. But that's a different comment. I can't pursue getting ahead the world's way. I've been in the business world for almost 40 years. And I've seen people try and get ahead the world's way. I've seen them step on others or, 
orchestrate situations that only benefit them and benefit nobody else. We don't get ahead the world's way. We do the best we can. We give all that we need to do, and we let God promote us in every situation that we're in. And we can't be a witness for God the world's way. How many times have I had someone tell me, well, if you're going to believe in the things you believe and believe in truth and believe in your sense of how marriage should be and believe in your sense about when life begins, you're being a bad witness for the cause of Christ. How would you know when you don't witness for him anyway? Being a witness for God means doing it God's way, not the world's way. When the world tries to influence me or influence any of us, and ridicule our position, even call you ignorant for having the ideas that you have. Another rem remarkable situation I remember from years ago on my job, someone had gone in the Easter season because it was the practice, their tradition, and they went to a local church and got ashes for Ash Wednesday. And when they came back, they were asked about that. And the person tried the best to explain his tradition and the way he expressed himself during the Easter season. And then it came down to talking about that he, in addition to the ashes, there were other things he would observe during Lent, and one of them was not having meat on Fridays. Then someone stepped in our little work area and began to criticize him intensely. And I listened. Normally I just kind of move away. But I listened because the person who stepped forward to criticize this individual was someone I knew to be a Christian. And he ridiculed him with scripture. The scripture he pointed out was 1 Timothy 4, beginning in chapter 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having your own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe in Know the truth, for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. He was basically criticizing this individual, using Paul's letter to, the, to, um, to Timothy, that everything should be fine, and if anyone's telling you to stop eating meat on Friday, that there's something wrong with you. And he really laid into him in front of all these other unchristians. He was trying to make him feel bad and immoral for following a tradition. And then he made his critical mistake. He turned to me and said, Hiram, what do you think? And I told him. Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him to stand. One person esteems one day above another, and others esteems every day alike. Let him be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord for him, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God's thanks. I basically told him to mind his own business. God is able. This was some of the strife that was happening in the church that James was addressing. But that's how the world interacts with each other, isn't it? When you disagree in the world, they, they put a target on you. 
they come at you, you're in trouble. So I get that's how the world acts. Beloved, that can't be how we act with one another. To be friendly with the world, to do things world ways, to be friendly with the world is to adopt the world's strategies. God will not accept that. God will not accept second place in our lives. Unless Jesus is first, and we can demonstrate that Jesus is first by doing things his way, we're never going to have the victory we seek. I heard this said long ago, and it's so true. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And we need to understand that. My third and final point for this victory, humble yourself before God. Is it just me or do others see the fact that we live in a highly arrogant society? Completely arrogant. Attitude are as bad at, or attitudes are as bad as I've ever seen them. Having a proud, haughty look is not only the norm, it's often applauded. And James is clear, that look God resists. But he gives grace to the humble. He blesses who understands their perspective next to him. God sets himself against the proud. So why would I ever want to be in a position where God's going to set himself against me? God opposes the self-centered. He resists those who are haughty. But humility opens the way for God to step in, for God's grace to flow into our lives and God's favor to be present because God favors the humble. Now we have this idea that being humble is being weak. But in so many situations that I'm in, it takes great strength to be humble. Especially when you're in a situation where someone is really talking dumb and all you want to do is smack them. I know, none of you are ever in that situation. It's just me. Because you've never been in a situation either with a family member or a friend or a coworker where they're talking and all you want to do is smack them. I know, it's never happened, but in case it ever does come up, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humility is not weakness. It's a place of courage. It's a place of strength to fight against evil. As God gives us more grace, we realize that the world's seductive attractions are only cheap substitutes for what God has to offer. I will try and describe my life to many people, and I'll do it with a smile. I'll share about the wonderful fellowship we have in church and then the wonderful time we have after service and the times when we get together and that meal I spoke about when we went out with Christian friends. And they'll say, but when do you have fun? And I go, what do you mean by fun? Well, nobody drank too much at your gatherings? I assure you, nobody did. There were no off-color jokes? No. 
How can you have fun if those things don't happen? I will try and explain it. Because the world's substitute for joy and peace is a poor one. God gives true peace. And only from peace can I have joy. When this world is going nuts and completely crazy, I can still walk in joy. And the Bible is clear. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Part of humbling ourselves means relying on his strength in verse 7, submitting ourselves to God. Now, I know they're separate sentences, but it's a single verse. And so many people know the other part of verse 7, which is resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's a powerful verse. I submit the best way to resist the devil is to submit to God. Submit to him and the resistance will happen. Resisting the devil, that means to get rid of him. Resist. Take a stand. However, make sure when we, that we don't separate these, as I mentioned. I submit and the resistance. Draw near to him. Enjoy his presence. He says, cleanse your hands. And what you do, purify your heart. And what we feel, focus our minds and what we think. And draw close to him. That's what we want to share with people as we reach out. That's what we want to share with people on St. James Day. That's what we want to share with people who come to the barbecue. That God has something better than what this world is offering. Because when we draw close to him, we become aware of our actions. We become aware of our attitudes. We become aware of our habits. I'm not looking to change anybody else. When I come to Wednesday night or to any time to pray, I'm like, Lord, Search me. Lord, talk to me about me. Where am I not living up? Where am I not lining up? And I do that because Psalm 145 verse 18 is true. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him. You know, when a Christian submits to God, the devil is no match for him. When you, we submit to God and humble ourselves before the Lord, the devil is no match for us. On our own, you're in trouble. But when we submit to God and humble ourselves to his ways and to his presence and to his perspective on life and to his perspective on anything that comes up in our culture, when we submit to him, I don't have to worry about the devil because the devil is defeated because I'm submitting to a greater power. We want this victorious Christian life. Then we submit to God. We pray according to his will. We love him above all other things. I love my family. I love this church. I love so many people. But I remember when my wife were dating and then we got engaged and we would say to each other, our goal in life was that for each other, we would be number two. 
Jesus had to be number one. Jesus always has to be number one. Hallelujah. I love Jesus more than anybody. And I've been questioned about that. You'll be questioned about that. You mean you love Jesus more than your wife? Yeah. More than your kids? Yeah. And then someone trying to be snarky at work. More than me? Absolutely. (laughs) So the question is, who are we submitting to today? Are we submitting to pressure? Are we submitting to anxiety? Are we submitting to a world gone crazy because of a pandemic? Are we submitting to political division? Are we submitting to racial tension? Or am I going to submit to the almighty God? That whatever I submit to will determine the level of victory in my life. Stand with me, please.